Hi, this is Chris Sorensen. Welcome to Brookville Road Community Church Podcast. If you haven't done so already, please take a moment to check out our website at brookvilleroad.cc for all the latest information about what's going on at Community Church. I hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in becoming a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. Well, good morning, church family. So good to have you here in-house with us, those that are joining us online as well. Now, when it comes to Christianity, there are a couple of extremes. On one extreme, you have license, and on the other side, you have legalism. So when, when it comes to legalism, very simplistically, uh, legalism is saying, uh, I contribute in some way to my salvation. Yeah, sure, like 90% is Christ on the cross, but that last 10%, uh, that's me. That's me just kind of topping it off and rounding it out. That's legalism. Then, then on the side of license, license is, hey, I can do whatever I want. I, I've got freedom. Uh, I can just enjoy life. Uh, there'll be forgiveness for me. Uh, I'm going to enjoy whatever. Uh, you read the Bible. You see that Jesus went to parties and he drank wine. And so you're like, well, I know mom and dad said I could never do that kind of thing. Uh, forget it. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Uh, forgetting the fact that every time that Jesus went to a party, people came into the kingdom and you have yet to be at a party telling people about Jesus. So there's the two extremes. You got license, you got legalism, and then you have where we need to live, and that is in liberty. God has given us liberty. He has given us freedom. Now, it's kind of there in the middle, but we need to understand as Christians, we have been given liberty by Jesus Christ. There are things in the Bible, uh, there's right, there's wrong, And then there are things that are kind of in the gray area. Like the Bible has a list of things right, list of things wrong, and then there's some things that really doesn't mention. And in those circumstances, it ends up just being like, well, what is... What is my preference? What, what is it that the Lord would have me to do? And everybody kind of has to wrestle with these things where, wherever you're at. Uh, for instance, like trick-or-treating. Families wind up someplace. Like some families are like, no, our, our kids aren't trick-or-treating. That, that is something we're not doing in this household. We don't feel right about that kind of thing. Uh, it's Reformation Day. We'll make a Reformation Day like cake or do something like that uh, because we just don't think like we should be trick-or-treating. Now, other families, other Christian families, they're like, No, we're going to trick-or-treat. In fact, get your skeleton outfit on, get out there and knock on the doors and get a whole bunch of candy uh, because when you're going to sleep tonight, I'm going to eat some of it, right? So like everybody's kind of in a different place with like, what can you do? Can you shop on Sunday? Can you go shopping on Sunday? Can you work on Sunday? Can you make someone else work on Sunday and go to a restaurant? Uh, can Can you golf on Sunday morning and score well, right? Like I... So, I mean, what is it? What can we do? What can we not do? And you say, well, there's stuff in the Bible about that. Like it says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The Sabbath day is Saturday. And everybody's at like a different place on what can we do, what can't we do. And a lot of it revolves even around the Sabbath and what we feel the freedom or liberty to do. I remember in my, my first pastorate, my first fully released pastorate was here in Indiana. Uh, I pastored in Upland, Indiana, where Taylor University is. And uh, at that pastorate, uh, when I first got there, I found out that they needed the lawn mowed. And there, there was a lot of lawn to mow. And uh, they wanted to hire somebody. And I volunteered. I volunteered to mow because I, I did the numbers. I got paid more mowing than I did to be a pastor. So I'm like, <laughs> I'll do it. I need to eat. Uh, so... So I would mow the lawn. 
And uh, I remember one Sunday, I, di- I didn't get out there in time. I, I didn't get the lawn mode. There, there was stuff going on just with work, and then the weather wouldn't let me get out there, and it had rained. And then Sunday came, and the lawn looked awful. Like, it, it did not look good. And then I just felt everybody judging me. Like, it's one thing to be judged for a poor sermon, but when they're coming in and they look at the lawn, they're like, no, that's, that's just not right. Like, I felt it. So that was a beautiful Sunday afternoon. And I determined the lawn needs mowed. I'm going to mow the lawn on Sunday. And so I get out there and I'm, I'm mowing the lawn. And right on the edge of the church lawn was one of the ladies who attended the church. Right on the edge. Her name was Afton. Uh, Afton, uh, mid, mid-80s, uh, sweet woman. Uh, she, she's the first person that I, I heard a new phrase. I hadn't heard this before. Uh, she, she used to play in the church. She used to play the piano. I realized I'm not in Kansas anymore. The piano is a piano. So uh, I would go over to her house from time to time. She's my neighbor. She attends the church. Afton was always smiling. Well, Afton called me up on that Sunday after I got done mowing. And she said, I would like to see you at my house. So Monday morning, I went straight to Afton's house and I sat down and Afton was not smiling. She was not happy because her pastor was out on a Sunday mowing the lawn And she just kind of ripped in on me. I'll come back to that in a moment. But every culture is different. Every culture that you go into, it has its own little things that you can do that you can't do. I heard about a pastor. He was in Texas. When he was pastoring in Texas, smoking was okay. Like, you you could just go out back, all the deacons, just a big fog. Like, where's Jerry? Can't find Jerry. Oh, he's back there somewhere. Right? So smoking, that was fine in Texas. Co-ed swimming, that was a no-no. Then he moved to California. And in California, smoking was bad, but co-ed swimming was fine. Now, the Bible doesn't have anything specific to say about boys and girls swimming together. And for that fact, it doesn't really have anything to say about smoking other than the fact that in Genesis 24, in the King James Version, it says, Rebecca lit off a camel. (laughs) I think it's verse 64. That has nothing to do with smoking, though. <laughs> so there's, there's all these gray areas, right? Like, uh, you know, can we drink alcohol? Don't drink alcohol. Uh, can, can we go dancing? Can you smoke a cigar? Uh, what's right? What's wrong when it comes to homeschooling? Uh, listening to country music? We all know that's wrong, right? I mean, can we, we'll just all agree that's wrong. But from culture to culture, you've got these different things, and we just realize some things are kind of in the gray area. Now, the Bible's clear. Like, the Bible is clear with right and wrong. We have whole lists in the Bible of, hey, these things are sin. Like, if you're going to live in these things and keep doing these things, you're not going to see those folks in heaven. When when you have this good list, here are the things that are the, the fruit of how we live. These are good. But then, in the Bible, there's things that just aren't addressed, And in those areas where it's a gray area, generally, our conscience will lead us. Our conscience will will let us know whether something is right or whether something is wrong. So the question becomes, you know, do you have liberty to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it? So we have liberty, but that liberty, it is conditioned. And maybe you're at a place right now in your own life and you're kind of wrestling with something. You're wondering, okay, the Bible doesn't say this is wrong. It doesn't necessarily say it's right. What, what do I do? And if you're in that place, let me just give you real quickly maybe a grid 
uh, some questions that you can ask yourself to determine, okay, should I do this? Should I not do this? So the first question that you need to ask yourself is, do I need this? Like, do I really need to do this thing? Is it useful to me? It, the next question would be, will this have a positive influence on me? Is this going to end up being good? Third question, you all have heard this one before, what would Jesus do? Right, what, what would Jesus Christ do? Would he do this? Would he not do this? Or how about this? Will doing this make me a stronger Christian? Will it build my faith? Will it move me in the right direction? Here's a question. Will I be a better witness? Will this help me evangelize and tell other people about Jesus Christ? Will that put Christ in a, in a good light as I witness to others? Another question would be, will this exalt Christ? Will this be exalting to him? And then the final question, and this is where Paul is going to be as we open up 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Will doing this set a good example for my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? That's what Paul is going to address. There are certain things in life that we just don't do. And we don't do them because they may be offensive to somebody else. Or we don't do them because they may be tempting to someone else. So Paul addresses this. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, if you would open there. 1 Corinthians 8, beginning at verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols. Uh, anybody wrestle with that this week? <laughs> no, like we don't, we don't have this issue. We, we aren't wrestling with this, but the Corinthians would because the, the Romans and the Greeks, man, they, they were polytheistic. They worshiped a whole bunch of gods and they believed that there were evil spirits everywhere. And they believed that there were evil spirits even in food. And in order to get rid of those evil spirits, you would have to take that food and you would have to sacrifice it to an idol. And so they would take that food and they would offer it up to this idol to get rid of evil spirits out of the food. So if you went to get a burger and the burger hadn't been sacrificed to an idol, then by eating that burger, you would get evil spirits, which explains the food poisoning I got at McDonald's. <laughs> right? that, that was a demonic burger. So they would, they would come and, that was weird, they, they would come and they would offer these things to this God. And the way that they would, they would process it, it, it would look like this. They'd take it in three parts. Uh, the first part of that animal, that would be sacrificed, burned up for that God. The second part of the animal, that would be given to the priest of that pagan temple. And the priest could eat it. If he didn't need to eat it, he would take it to the market and sell it and make money. The third part of the animal, that would be given back to the person who brought that sacrifice. And that person could take it to the market or they could pay, take it back to their home they could serve it to their family. They could serve it to their friends as they're coming over. So as a Christian living in that culture with this kind of like animal sacrifice to these false gods, as a Christian, you've got maybe a few options here. One way to look at this is, hey, uh, I'm not eating that. There's still, a, there's still an evil spirit in it because that isn't a real God. That's a false idol, and that may be a demonic thing anyway, so I'm not eating that at all. Another way to look at it is, this represents my old life. This is the way that I used to live, sacrificing to these idols, and I can't go there anymore. I, I can't go back to that. I feel wrong when, when I eat meat sacrificed to an idol. Or the third way that Christians could look at it is, hey, this is nothing. It means nothing. Uh, go ahead. Uh, let's throw that thing on the Barbie, Barbie medium rare. Uh, dig in. Let's live for the Lord and live it up and eat this food. So if you were a weaker Christian, you, you would say, I can't. 
I can't, th- this reminds me of my old life. I can't go back to where I was. If you're a stronger Christian, understanding your liberty and, and the freedom that you have, you're like, yeah, let, let's do this. And the Christians in Corinth were faced with it every day. They couldn't go anywhere and not deal with this. They would walk the street and pass the market and they would wonder, is that some meat sacrificed to that false god? They, they would go over to somebody's house for a meal and they'd be thinking in the back of their mind, hey, did they offer that to this false god? They, they would go to social events and they're always faced with this issue. And so Paul is going to deal with it. He's gonna give them a solution on how to begin to address this. And before Paul launches into uh, how to address this and what you need to do, he says the first thing that you need to know is you, you need to realize that love needs to define your whole life. Your liberty is limited by your love. Your liberty is limited by your love. So there I am. I'm sitting in Afton's living room, sitting on her couch that's covered with plastic, just kidding, just trying to like paint a picture of it. So I'm sitting there, and she's just kind of, you know, reading me the riot act. She, she is just laying into me. I felt liberty. I felt freedom in mowing the lawn and doing that. Afton was highly offended. And in that moment, uh, I, I, I'm like you, and this was the bad part. Like, I, I felt like justifying myself. I felt like in the moment, like, I, I need to be right. I feel like, man, you're just attacking me on this thing where I feel this freedom and there's nothing, I'm not going to hell because I mowed the lawn and this isn't good. But in that moment, I took it as an opportunity to yes, teach, but to try to make a point. So I'm going down this line of, all right, let's look at 1 Corinthians 8. Let's look at Romans 14. I start asking her questions like, oh, so you, you don't do anything on, on Sunday. You don't want to, you know, me to mow the lawn. Let me ask you, Afton, do you go to a restaurant on Sundays? Yeah. So you're having others work for you. So that's not like the good part of your pastor. That's like, chill out. And then I finally, like in the moment, had this moment of realization. I don't need to be right. I said to Afton, I love you. And I love you more than I love mowing the lawn on Sunday. And I'd spent time talking about, you know, weaker Christian, stronger Christian. I said to her earlier, like, you're the weaker Christian in this scenario. <laughs> she, 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 she took that well. She, she did. But after I said, I, I love you, this isn't about me getting my way. I will not mow this lawn on Sunday. Boy, she was happy. And she called up all the other ladies and like, I told the pastor what to do. <laughs> and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I need to love Afton, not love being right. Our liberty is limited by our love. And so for the Corinthians, they wrote this letter to Paul. And they're talking about this issue that everybody's having. Like some people are having this issue and this problem with eating meat. Here's what we're going to do. And I think they sent the letter with the intention of, we're going to go ahead and eat this meat. And in fact, as we read these verses, you're going to see some quotes here. Paul is believed he's writing back, this is what you've said, and here is a response to it. And they give three reasons why they say, we're going to go ahead and eat this meat. And the first reason that they give is, we all have knowledge. It's kind of an egotistical kind of thing to say. We, we, know, we know all we need to know. Verse one, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that, quote, all of us, possess knowledge. So we all have knowledge. 
That the Bible doesn't say if you eat this meat, you're going to go to hell. We all have knowledge that these aren't real gods. We all know that this food isn't something that's going to make us right with God. But Paul's going to say not everybody understands this because we're going to get to verse 7 and he's going to say, however, not everybody possess that knowledge that you say that you possess because some people have lived a certain way and they carry that baggage with them. And if they go ahead and eat that meat offered to an idol, they're going to do damage to their conscience, defiling themselves, sinning, So everybody hasn't matured to the place where you've matured. Even though this isn't forbidden by God, Paul shows why this can't be applied. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. I'm not saying that knowledge isn't important. Knowledge is important. But the Corinthians had a puff-up problem. They had a problem with their pride. They had a problem knowing what they knew and trying to get their way. You got to have knowledge, but that knowledge has to be undergirded with love, not pride. Verse two, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. So when you think you know everything, you don't know anything. The, The first part of knowledge is knowing you don't know everything. And you have to accept the fact that I don't have all knowledge. Then he says this, but... If anyone loves God, he is known by God. More important than your knowledge is God's knowledge. More important than even your knowledge of God is God's knowledge of you. You might think that all that you need in your life is just to believe that there is a God. Like, I believe there's a God, and I feel like I'm a good person. So when I die, I'm going to stand in front of this God, and he's going to be like, well, you've been a good person. Uh, I know you, but that's not the case. Most important is that you know that God knows you. It's one thing to say, I believe there's a God. That's fine. You need to believe what God says and what God says about you and your condition and your sin, and what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. Satan believes there's a God. Satan's not going to be in heaven. More important than you saying, I know of Jesus, I know these facts, I call myself a Christian, is that God knows you, which means that he has a relationship with you. And the only way that God begins to know you is when God begins to open up a rebellious heart that has lived in rebellion and pride to God and saying, I don't really need that. I don't need to repent. I don't need the blood of Jesus Christ. I don't need to receive him. I just believe there's a God. It's all going to work out. I'll be just fine. And God says, no, you need to be known by me in a relationship. Because when we get to heaven, we can't just be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was in church. They told me about Jesus. Hey, Jesus, I know you. In fact, at one point, Jesus gives this picture of what it's going to be like in heaven when he separates the sheep and the goats, people who love him and people who don't. And there's going to be people separated in the goat section who are like, Jesus, I know you. Jesus, why am I over here? I know you. I did great things. I prophesied in your name. I did miracles in your name. Jesus, remember me? Look, look, here I am. And Jesus is like, depart from me. I never knew you. He made you, but you never had a relationship with him. You just think that knowledge 
and having facts and information about what has happened in history is enough. It is not. You need to receive the good news. And the only way that we begin to do that is when God begins to pull back the veil of your heart, open up the ears and your spiritual eyes, and you begin to say, I want him. I long for him. Until that happens, you'll never receive him. You stand in rebellion. Today's the day to drop that and to let Jesus know you in a relationship. So Paul's saying that this love, this knowledge, it's really important. What are we going to do when we, when we know that God knows us? What do we do when he starts pouring that love into us? Well, it's going to affect the way that we begin to love one another. As Christians, we want to think that we're autonomous, especially here in America. Like we're just kind of on our own. We're connected. What we do for one another, with one another, that matters. It shows that we truly have a relationship with this one who we are now known by and his spirit lives in us. Our love for God and for our fellow brother and sister in Christ. And so it's not enough for the Corinthians to come along and say, well, we have knowledge. This is fine. We're going to go ahead and do it. The second thing that they brought forward is we realize an idol's nothing. Like an idol is worthless. There's only one God. These gods, these idols, these things, they're man-made. They have no power. This is what Paul says. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that it, quote, an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. So he's saying those gods, they're not really gods. They're fake gods. They're wood. They're stone. You can go up to them. You can tap on them. They have no power in and of themselves. They're lifeless. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are, quote, many gods and many Lords, then he says, yet for us, there's one God. I love this verse. There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so Paul would preach over and over and over again. There's all kinds of idols around us, but they're not going to save you. There's all kinds of things that you might lean on and hope in, but that's not going to save you. Only Jesus Christ will save you. I mean, he, he would just go straight at the culture and be like, nope, that's wrong. That's false. That's not a real God. In fact, people got so honked off at him in Ephesus that he started a riot. Everybody's like, hey, great as Artemis, like two hours. They wanted to kill Paul, and they start chanting. They don't even know what they're doing, but they think that that God had power. And Paul's like, nope, doesn't have power. And it's been that way from the beginning of creation. The psalmist says this. Listen, I'll just read this. Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. In other words, nothing. They're nothing. So for the Corinthians, their argument was, we realize uh, what difference does it make if we eat this meat because these aren't real gods. And Paul would agree. That's exactly right, but he's not done. Verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to idols, and their conscience, being weak, 
is defiled. So not everybody has this knowledge yet. They, they used to believe that this God, it was a real thing. It had real power and it is so ingrained in them. And they have not yet matured in their faith to realize the liberty that they have. That if they go and they eat this meat, they are defiling their conscience. Their conscience hasn't grown yet. They haven't matured in the faith yet to realize all of the liberty and freedom that they have been given. And so the person who eats this meat, they're going to defile their conscience if they believe that is wrong. Their conscience says, don't do it. And if they do it, that's sin. So for some people, when, when you see something and they know it's wrong, for them it is wrong. For them it is sin. It might be fine for you. This is one of those gray areas where you have to pay attention. What is God calling me to do? And if that person begins to partic participate in that, they're going to feel guilty. And if you were someone who begins to lead someone who doesn't have that liberty yet in the direction of sinning, they're going to look at them and start resenting you. They're going to start feeling guilty. And I believe Paul is saying this has the potential to push them in one of those directions of more license or legalism and not in the direction of liberty. So Paul says you're better off letting these individuals not violate their conscience, even though it's more confining. And for you, it's fine. And you have all of this knowledge. Don't push them to do something they know for themselves is wrong. So far, they've said, we've, we've all got this knowledge. These idols are nothing. And then the final piece here, it's this. Food isn't an issue. They're saying it, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter uh, whether we eat this, we don't eat this. It just doesn't matter. We're, we're under this new covenant. It's not part of the old covenant. And, and the rules and the laws and the regulations when it comes to diet. So he goes on. He says this in verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So God could care less what you eat. He doesn't want you to be a glutton, but it doesn't matter what you eat. You can have hamburgers, you can have hot dogs, you can have pizza, you can even eat lima beans. God will just think it's gross. Like, oh, like that's why, amen, yes. That's why he made lima beans. I think he was just testing us. Like, I'm gonna make this. I'll see if they eat it. Oh, they ate it. Oh, that's gross. We don't have dietary restrictions. Just use your head. Just use your head, that's it. He goes on, verse 9, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. A stumbling block, that's a potential to sin, right? Causing somebody to fall into sin. You'd be better off that your example wouldn't lead someone down a path of sin. This is why Jesus said in Luke 17, he says, better to have a millstone tied around your neck than to cause one of these little ones of mine to stumble. You don't want to be in a place where you are causing someone and their feet to move in the direction of sin. So we've got to be real careful about the kind of example that we are leading with people around us, right? I mean, the, the, the closest kind of correlation that I think that we can draw to, to what they were having is, is probably alcohol in, in today's world, right? You're not going to find me drinking alcohol in front of somebody who has struggled with alcoholism, that, that's, that's wrong. That is, a, that is a tempting thing to do in front of them. He says this in verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? He sees you do it, and he says, well, if they can participate in it, I can participate in it. Verse 11. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. 
So he's going against his conscience here. He might fall back into old patterns. It's important. Listen, never violate your conscience. If you have something on the inside of you that is saying, don't do it, don't go there, don't look at that, don't drink that, listen to that. Never disobey what is happening on the inside with that little voice. Because whenever you start moving down a direction where you start thinking, no, I'm strong enough and I'm just going to push that voice away, you violate your conscience. You don't get stronger. You get weaker. You begin to lose strength. Never violate your conscience. If that voice on the inside of you says, don't, don't go there. Don't look at that. Obey. And on the flip side of this, if you're a mature Christian, you understand the grace of God, the liberty of God, and you can do a whole bunch of things that maybe other people cannot. Don't allow that liberty that you have to set a bad example for someone that they may just go right off the cliff. You could destroy them. Verse 12, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. So that other believer, they're one with Christ. Jesus said this in Matthew 25, verse 40. He says, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. They're one with Jesus Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. That is love. If you're willing to go vegan, dude, that's love, right? The most important bottom line is I'm going to love my brother and sister in Christ. I'm going to make sure that I don't lead them to a place of stumbling. I'm not looking to violate their conscience. I'm not looking to destroy this relationship because I've offended them in some way. So rather than trying to make a point, Paul wanted to make a difference. Rather than trying to get his own way and say, I've got all this knowledge and I know these things and I'm going to set you right, he was more interested on not destroying a relationship with a weaker brother or sister so that he could continue to disciple them. This is important. He didn't push for his rights. He began to limit his liberty by love. And Paul knew that the perfect example of this was his savior. It's Jesus. Didn't he limit his liberty? Realize how he set everything aside, how he had all the power, all the glory, all the majesty in heaven, complete freedom, liberty, and he sets it all aside. And he comes to earth to die in our place, to hang on a cross, to ransom us. The Bible tells us that, that Jesus is God. And when he basically added by subtraction, or subtracted by adding, right? He's adding to himself humanity. He's setting aside all of the rights and power that he had with an eye on love for you. Because without Christ, you are dead. You're dead in your sins and your transgressions. So Jesus leaves all of that and he comes to earth and he lives a perfect life. He didn't even have a home. He was homeless. He healed people. He loved people. He showed us who God is. And then he goes to a cross. And as he dies on the cross, he bleeds and dies. As he's dying, he's dying in my place. He's dying in your place. The Bible tells us that in this moment, there's an imputation that happens, a transference that God had placed on Jesus all of your sin, everything that you had ever done wrong in your life, given to him in this moment. 
Jesus died there in your place. He was buried in a grave. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. And there's another imputation that is given. This imputation is his righteousness. When we receive him, when we repent of our sin, when we say, Jesus, I believe you are the son of God. I believe you rose from the dead. He then gives us his righteousness and we are made alive from the inside out and we have a relationship with him forever. That happened because he set aside all of his liberty so that you might experience the liberty and freedom from sin and death. And he can be yours. He can be yours this morning. Father, please know people in a relationship. It's not so much just the facts and knowledge that we've gotten. Not some emotional tug by some preacher. It is your spirit opening a heart to who you are. So Father, for the individuals who, whose walls are just kind of falling apart and breaking down and you are entering in, wash us, cleanse us. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for dying for my sin. Thank you for rising from the grave. Thank you for offering me life. I receive it now. In Jesus' name, I belong to you. Thank you. Amen. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love for you to join us at one of our weekend worship services. For service times and information about BRCC, be sure to check out brookvilleroad.cc. God bless you.